Hi, this is Joshua M. Bernstein of The Complete Beer Course, and you're listening to the Beer Mighty Things Podcast. What's the middle name? Uh, Michael. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think like with Michael, with, uh, you know, when I first started out writing in uh, New York City, there were a lot of uh, Josh Bernstein's a pretty common Jewish name. So I found a Josh Bernstein who's also like an author or like a explorer or something. There is an explorer, Josh Bernstein. Yeah. There's conspiracy theorist, Josh Bernstein. There's like <laughs> all these like other Josh Bernsteins out there. And so I had to sit there and be like, okay. So it's like, on one hand, I, you feel like, ah, oh, I'm being pretentious using the middle initial, but it's just like saying like, hey, I'm Joe Smith, the writer. And it's like, how many Joe Smith writers yeah. are out there too? And so, I mean, when I first started off, and we we're talking like early 2000s, I want to say, I worked for Time Out in New York magazine. And so I was working for them and I wouldn't get paychecks. I was like, where's my paychecks? What's happening? And they were being sent to a Joshua D. Bernstein who worked <laughs> at um, Time Out in New York as well, too. Not as a writer, but like he'd be walking down the street and they'd be like, nice article, Josh. And he's like, I didn't write. So eventually we got together and I did a story. God, this is like, must have been like 18, 19 years ago about what happens when two Josh Bernsteins get confused to each other. And we talked about this other Josh Bernstein, the explorer, who also gets people reaching out to him about beer. And then the other hilarious thing, there's like this conspiracy theorist, Josh Bernstein. So I'd get these people writing me that would be like telling me their conspiracies. And I just have to be like, I'm so sorry, but you're the wrong Josh Bernstein. And the only way you can get rid of people like that is be like, have a blessed day. And then (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious. I love that you met the other Josh Bernstein and wrote a paper about it. Yeah. You know what? It's just like, there's just, you know, when you got a name out there too, and sometimes you get confused for other people, but I've actually, you know, it happens usually once a year, another Josh Bernstein will reach out to me. That's either getting my emails, getting somebody confused, or it's just, uh, it's like this ongoing thing that's just going to happen throughout my life. I'm sure of. I have a friend who had the same name as somebody else who completely destroyed his credit because uh, they somehow tied, you know, good credit, social security number to bad credit, social to to name and um, completely destroyed his credit. So it's been like years to rebuild that. So, oh, my God, use that middle name. Make sure you're including that. I got the paychecks eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, man. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to bring us in officially. Yeah, totally. Welcome into the Beer Mighty Things podcast. It's what you listen to while you brew. It's what's in your ears as you drink beers or read books about beers. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner, and we're bringing back a guest from season three. He's written for the New York Times, Men's Journal, Bon Appetit, Imbibe, Wine Enthusiast, and uh, he was our guest for episode 133 on Staying Curious that aired in 2022. He is back with uh, the revision to the complete beer course, Joshua M. Bernstein. Joshua, what's going on, man? No, mucho. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. I'm excited. I'm glad you uh, you shared with me, uh, you know, a little behind-the-scenes sneak peek of the new book. And um, I will say the photos and the imagery, is they're phenomenal. The photos are vivid. Mm. And I can't read very well, so the fact that you have a lot of photos in there is great for <laughs> me. So. Well, you know, I think like I think when you look at beer, such a visual medium, and when you try to look at book, when I try to think about books, I try to think like how do you engage people in the same way you may draw people in with the beer? It's like the label, it's the way the liquid looks, it's how it's served yeah. and presented. And I mean, it's like I think when you're writing a book on beer, for me personally, I always try to think about how can you make everything look as good as it reads. And so I spend probably you know a ton of time making sure that we've got the right photos. That we've hunted down the right imagery, that we've like made the layout look good, not just look good, but like feel engaging too. Because yeah. I don't know I've always felt with beer too, it's like it can be a little overwhelming at first for some people trying to dive into these broad universes. Crazy. What we found with the first edition was just that you know if you present beer in like the snippets that you snippets, you can jump in where you want, jump in, jump out. You don't have to read page one to three hundred and fifty-two to understand everything. In the same way that you may drink an IPA today, a stout tomorrow, that you can kind of like get what you want out of the way or get what you want when you want it. Is your book 352 pages? Ah, 340. I think so. Or 342. I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> it felt like a very specific number to pull out of my book. That was, that was pretty good. <laughs> um, cool. So, all right. The new, has the name changed of the book? Yeah, I think we took out, um, I think the original one was just complete beer course. Then like boot camp for beer geeks from novice expert and 12 tasting classes. 
And, you know, I mean, like, this is like part of this big seismic change, too. Like, if you know, if you talk about like 10 years ago, like keep bearing and being a beer geek and things like that felt like a phrase that was like super important to have. Like, oh, I'm a beer geek. I love beer and stuff. But I feel like a lot of that's like faded away a little bit as sure. beer has become not just a niche subject, it's become something that's really enjoyed by a broad cross section of people calling somebody a geek kind of like mm-hmm. on one hand you've got sort of the sci-fi associations and you've got these sort of like subcultures too but i think beer is so broad like geek culture beer has gone mainstream in a lot of ways yeah. too and so we took that out and i think it makes it i think a little bit more um you know hopefully brings people in doesn't exclude people that may be turned off by certain terminologies as well too when you started writing this book I guess, when was that? And did you plan on having it? Because this is 10 years. This is 10-year anniversary, basically, right? Yeah, this is a 10-year edition. I mean, it didn't... <laughs> it's kind of a complex. What's the 2033 vision? 2033 edition. We're all going to be drinking um, <laughs> inhaled IPA particles. Vapor. As we party in our tiny little huts somewhere on the outskirts of the exurbs. I don't know. Um, but that is a different book altogether or a future speculative fiction. Um, you know, originally, my, you know, you never know what's going to happen with the book, too. But originally, my publishers um, want me to write a version of Windows in the World Complete Wine Course, which is one of the more successful, instructive wine books of all time. It sold multi-millions copies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that book has always undergone continual revisions, I would say, too. So I think in this case, it was always in the back of my mind we do a revision. And so, you know, publishing is really not just about the timing, but have the book sold through? Are you revising a book while there's tons of stock sitting around? So probably around like 2018, 2019, we looked around a little bit and we thought, okay, now's the time to really make this change for the book. So we signed the contract, I think. In 2019, um, started laying the groundwork for it. Then all of a sudden, like originally the book was going to be out in 2021, but as we all know, hindsight is 2020. So at that point, right there with the book, like probably around like March hit, and I started doing. I was already doing the revision, and I just had to like stop everything because we didn't know what the industry was going to look like. Didn't know what the world was going to look like. More to that point too. So I kind of had to stop for probably like six months to nine months. And just rethink. But I think that rethink helped me do a lot of like um, re-envisioning what the book was really going to be all about. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you go back to like 2013, a lot of the ways, shapes and forms that we experience beer, you would travel to one of America's like five or ten great beer cities, the Portland, Oregon, you go to San Diego, you would drink XYZ beer and you'd have this great collective understanding of what beer was. So it made a lot of sense to seek out cities seek out specific beers to go to certain beer festivals that focus on certain things too but nowadays you fast forward to today there's like better beer at your gas station today than was at your beer shop like 10 years ago yeah that's just the irony of it all too that we're in this like world of giant riches so how do you kind of talk about beer in a world that's like far more fractured than it used to be that what you're drinking today is not what somebody is drinking like 2000 miles away. We don't have that same, I think, collective shared framework. And so having specific restaurants to go to specific beer festivals, things that may not even exist and oftentimes cease to exist made, uh, made pretty much zero sense to me. So I thought like, what is really important about beer and we go back again to 2013. We talked a lot about this sort of like we, you know, tended to sit at the altar of the brewmaster back then, where we held a lot of people to be in super high acclaim. It's like this brewery, this person, everything seemed to flow forth from the power of one person down below. Then that's not really the case. If you actually pay attention, look into a brewery, it's the canning line operators, the quality con- con- quality control technicians, it's everybody on there that really, I think makes beer. So I was like, okay, let's make the book far more about the people itself. So I took out a lot of these calls to actions, which I think helped you become a better beer drinker back then. And now I think we need to have like a better understanding of what the beer industry truly is right now too. So I kind of pinpointed all of these jobs and roles and um, sought them out. Like what does a head brewer actually do? What does a seller person actually do? And I want them to tell their stories about how they got to this point right now. And even if their jobs change, even if they leave the industry, their, I think, roles are going to be, their stories are still instructive and timeless in the sense that telling you go to a restaurant in San Francisco may not be. So it was a lot of like rethinking like that and going back to a lot of source people like, you know, I think we've had a turn away from a lot of classic styles, 
but I wanted to really get people like, uh, you know, the people from DuPont, the people from Rodenbach to like put into their own words what this was. So by having this downtime, I actually had the freedom to reach out to them and have them tell me like, what's it like to make a flat, you know, what's it make to make a traditional saison? What are things we should be looking for? And so I had a lot of time to really bring a lot more people into the book than I would before. And so, yeah, it was just, that was really the, that was like the rethink on that too. And so, yeah, and that led to 2021 to 2022, then 2023. So what was originally going to be like a one-year job ended up becoming like like a three-year odyssey through a pandemic. <laughs> three-year odyssey through a pandemic. That sounds like a book. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I think it's a so, book we open right. So. so I guess I I kind of have two questions here. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to separate them. When you are thinking about your next book, mm-hmm. thinking about this book, and they're, you know, your publisher, does, do you have that conversation of going, all right, hey, we want another beer book. Should we update and revise the one you already did? Or do we take a new approach and write a completely different book? And if so, how do we do that? Is that a conversation you have? It's a conversation you have too. I think a good analogy would be like a band. Okay. Sometimes the band has like a greatest hits album or an album that does really well. Then you remaster it with the 10-year edition, 20-year edition. Maybe you put in two or three new tracks, maybe you remaster stuff too. And that's like a simple analogy to what was going on right there too. I mean, in in the best sense like that, you because you want your properties that are selling well to be refreshed. I mean, it's business, right? And so if you got something that's been a proven seller and this book has done like 100,000 plus copies, been translated in multiple languages. So in, in their minds, it's a property, right? And so that's why I think an earlier book I did was an extension on that, the complete IPA. So it was an extension on this like complete concept on there. But what they thought was going to be, I think, a quick remastering and a quick like couple additional tracks ended up me pretty much tearing the book all the way down. And there's probably like, I would say we added an additional 35,000 words, I think 30, 35,000 words from what it was originally. And probably the original 90 plus thousand, half of those are gone probably or completely yeah. redone just because that's just the way the world worked out. Absolutely. I mean, beer's changing on a weekly, daily, monthly, whatever basis right now, too. So to have a book like this, I really need to rethink, like, how we talked about stuff and just, like, take away and, like, redo so much of the content. So now, again, I still have that one question, and now I have another one. Um, when you wrote in 2013, there was, there was like, 4,000 breweries. So Not even that many, I think. 3,500, I mean, something, something like that, right? Yeah. We were still below the pre-prohibition number. Um, and now... There's a is you know roughly we'll call it ten thousand. So when you go back to writing this book, how do you determine who to speak with? It's a great question. I mean, you want on one hand you want breweries that people may have some passing familiarity with, but on the other hand you don't want to exclude every single person on there. But you have to take. I think for me, I had to take an approach of like, do you have a track record as a brewery that's been doing stuff? I mean, if you've been open for six months or a year, who are you going to be in five years from now? I think people like breweries evolve and change over time. They have to settle into who you truly are. So that's not going to be something that's apparent right away. So, you know, unfortunately, you can't focus on breweries that are like the hot young brewery that may be doing something today, changing tomorrow. I mean, we've seen this so many times in the beer industry over the last like, um, you know, Dogfish Head nowadays is betting big on like uh, canned cocktails. Yep. Stone has Buena Vesa, their own um, lager. So things that we held to be sort of like, true about certain breweries is evolving so rapidly right now too so i want to take a you know but on certain senses so for example in the original edition for the uh profile on like a sour beer producer crooked stave right crooked stave now makes a lot of their bones on sour rose but also their bond pilsner also their ipas and so they're kind of like not as good of a case study anymore right, right. so but you look so i had hermit thrush brewery in vermont which you know they are all sour. So I'm like, okay, they're a person that's like proven their track record. They're diving down into this stuff too. So originally for the was it the Pilsner Lager chapter a chapter, I had Victory on there. Victory's like 70% of their business is now Golden Monkey. Right. Isn't like, that crazy? Pretty, Triple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Prima is now still a, a part of their DNA, but it's not part of their sales in the way that it was previously. So I was like, okay, who can I step in there? So it's like, okay, Jack Sabby is making their bones like squarely on lager. So they're a better study to like bring in there too. So even people that made sense, like Green Flash was the IPA brewery and like 2013, that made a lot of sense. They were such at the vanguard of pushing things forward. And then yeah. fast forward today, they're owned by like a subsidiary of a weed company or cannabis company. Yeah. I think, like, And that's just like how things have changed. So you bring in, I think, uh, 
Alvarado Street Brewery, which may, may not be like a you know a brand name for everybody across country, but what they do, they do incredibly well, and they're a great study yep. how you make it happen. So even like thinking about who the breweries I selected back then to today changed so much on there, just because your focus as a brewery changed as a way to adapt to the marketplace. It, and even I see it on my side when I go back and I kind of peek through the history of the podcast. I'm in year four now. Um, yeah, a lot of the people I interviewed aren't with that same brewery anymore or that brewery doesn't yeah. exist anymore or that brewery is making different products than they did before. Or, you know, they were, Hey, we want to do tasting room only. And now they focused on, Hey, we're doing distribution only. Like, so everything has shifted, um, in yeah. just three years. It's wild. Yeah. The models, I think like, you know, we can say the pandemic changed everything, but it did, but it was really just like consumer tastes are, cons- are always fickle. I mean, what we consumed 30 years ago is not what we consume today. And I mean, if I go back to like the 90s, I'm like 44. Growing up, like crushing Zima and hiding wine coolers away and funding like <laughs> that too. But then, you know, you see things happen in these cycles and changes where today, 30 years later, Zima became like, uh, Zima became hard seltzer. Then like wine coolers became sort of this like new world of like FMVs and things like that right. too. It's just like rethinking. Like it's not even like so- Mike's Hard Lemonade, like. Yeah, and it was like some of these things were too far ahead of their time. Yeah, I mean, Twisted Tea was like a 2000 or 2001 yeah. release. And like nowadays, it's like still growing gangbusters. And that's why, like, you know, I mean, this is like slightly off topic. But you talk about these things where people are like better for you and wellness and things like that. And like for a beverage, such buzzwords right now, too. But you point to Twisted Tea and you're like, people just want sugar bombs. And it's like, mm. I think it goes back in America. If you want pleasure. Oftentimes you don't give a crap like what the caloric load is. If you want your frappuccino with like two pumps of chocolate syrup and extra whipped cream and chocolate sprinkles on top, you're going to get it. Not caring is like 800 calories. When and so same thing with your beverage thing. If it's like Treat if it makes you happy, if it makes you happy, you're not going to give a shit about it. You're just gonna. Or if it's twelve dollars for one of those coffees, you're like, yeah, I don't give a shit. Like, yeah. You know, too, like, I mean, I think the great, you know, I think the greatest fear is like one day that people need to put calorie counts on double IPAs. And so we'll see what happens when that happens. But I mean, and triple I can tell you about my waistline, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you look in the mirror, you can tell yourself, but it's like, it's, uh, yeah, but I think it's like, you know, you go to a fast food restaurant and you're like, wait a minute, how many calories is like a double bacon, double bacon, triple baconator burster? A day's worth of food. Yeah, so I think that too, but this is a whole other thing for another. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, calorie, calorie counts are next episode. Yeah, calorie, but you know, tastes change over time. But I think there's this like um, like uh, what what showed me I think too from this book too is like you know this we we had this like movement away from like lagers and pilsners into more full flavored beers, and like now we're just like moving back into it. And it's just there's something about that like four or five percent flavor profile that's going to be eternal for so many people too. It's like what we want, what we crave. And I mean, no matter how things spin around, it feels like we yo-yo back to like yeah. 5% lockers, right? And I, you know, I love, I always love coming back to that crispy, refreshing beer. Again, you know, a lot of times yeah. we, we, we drink based on kind of weather or season too. Yeah. Uh, but I do like, there's, you know, a lot of these beers, you know, I get Treehouse and stuff like that. It's like eight, 9%. I'm like, you know, I want to have two and I don't want to, you know, it's a Tuesday. I don't want to have two of those, you know? Yeah. So if you can give me a 4.8%, you know, very flavorful pale ale, like I am so happy with that, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you can find a 4.8% flavorful pale ale, uh, let me know. <laughs> All right. There's a couple. I got some. <laughs> uh, well, that that's also the other thing I think for the book too, that, you know, trying to find like classic examples of like, Trying to find a nationally distributed, non-adjuncted stout is right. pretty freaking hard nowadays. I mean, it's like Bells and Deschutes, essentially, were the two like big breweries that are still doing like that on a broad scale. And you don't just want to have every suggestion. Because like in the book, we do a thing called like two tastes. Because I think the best way to understand anything is to drink it. But And you do want a certain like – see, those you want to have like hopefully a framework of understanding on there or a shared collective like thing. But like – very few, but you don't want to have it just being like, well, try this here in Nevada beer. Cause it's just like, there are fewer and fewer national examples of things like that nowadays. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was really around St. Patty's day. It was really neat. Cause a lot of the breweries had on those 4.2 dry stout. Yeah. 
And I was like, dude, I'm loving these. You know, if I get a full bodied, you know, full flavored stout, that's low ABV. Again, coming back to that low ABV, like I want to have two or three and I don't want to yeah. sleep on my couch. So um, yeah, I think, I think the hard part with like dark beer, people still conflate, I think, uh, dark beer with like heavy sure. and like, as you know, with like a Guinness on there too, it's like, it's not heavy on there too. But I think that's like, that's something. And I think dark beers tend perception. to perception. Yeah. It's perception. That's why like a double doubles are having a very hard, like a, like a Belgian style double 8%, like, you know, malt rich beers having a very hard time, but like the 9% triple is like doing great right now, yeah. which, um, yeah, this is actually a really funny side side note on there. When I was doing this story for the Times, like back in March about malt liquor, or sorry, back in uh, January about malt liquor, interviewed a lot of people. And if you think about like the difference between a triple and a malt liquor, they're both like adjunct, have heavy, boozy beers on there. And there's like the big difference is oftentimes the yeast strain, what you choose. Like you swap out the Belgian yeast strain for something else, you get a malt liquor, and it was like this crazy, like, light bulb moment of just like you know adjunct boosted high abv beer which has its place in other cultures and things like that too and you know i was talking to kevin davy from wayfinder he's mentioning sort of the cold ipa was based upon a malt liquor grist which i thought was just sort of like it's so crazy that you know malt liquor is something that is still kind of this third rail of brewing for all people because of cultural perceptions like you know, maybe like how it's packaged yeah packaging cultural perceptions everything all together yep. And, uh, but you call the cold, like you add extra hops to a malt liquor, you got the cold IPA and it's like, bling, bling. There you go. That's funny. Well, I don't know why I said bling, bling. I've not said bling, bling in forever. <laughs> You're going back 10 years ago to the original book. Wow. Um, I always laugh, you know, kind of with this, what you're speaking about right now, Jimmy Fallon on his show, he always does those like, thank you notes. Yeah. And He'll do, you know, thank you, whatever, for whatever. So the one thing always cracked me up, and this was years ago, this probably like 2015, but he said, you know, thank you, craft beer, for making my alcohol problem look like a cool hobby. Yeah. You know? So that's, again, kind of coming back to that packaging. Like, we're all still drinking alcohol. We're all still doing it for whatever reason. Um, but because it's packaged, cool, it's it's fun, it's trading, It you know, it, it has a different persona, I guess. Yeah, too. I mean, we use alcohol, uh, we use objects as cultural signifiers, be it food, be it drink, be it the music we listen to. And like, you know, craft beer is definitely a cultural signifier, like holding an IPA, like hazy IPA in your hand says something different than holding like, you know, a macro bud in your hand. I mean, it communicates something different. For better or worse, we make knee jerk knee jerk um have knee jerk opinions about people based upon like the way they dress, the way they look. I mean, that's just like, without the in the absence of conversation it's like okay you're drinking a craft beer and like you know stereotypes it becomes a stereotype after a while and i think there's this uh it's wild to watch craft beer become what was once at one point this like ultimate signifier of like something like you're cool you understand almost countercultural in a sense to be so mainstream that now it's becoming kind of like mocked at times as well too and it's just everything spins around in these circles yeah. and so but nothing can stay Cool. Nothing stays cool forever. That's just the reality. It's true. And you always have to rethink. And I mean, rethink like how, rethink how you, what you are, how you sell things to people too. And I mean, there are very few hundred year brands in, you know, very few brands make it to a hundred years, be it a decade, even two decades. So, I mean, the fact that some of these brands have reached 10 years in their life cycle is like wild, two decades in their life cycle, four decades. But you're talking how many craft brewers, the oldest craft brewers in the country, well, if we say Anchor, or if we say like Sierra Nevada, like, you know, late 70s, early 80s, that's like still a blip within like the brand life cycle from a lot of people. It's like not that long. Right. Yeah. You keep saying rethinking, which yeah. this, this comes back to my original question um, that I didn't ask yet. And when, when you are rethinking these books, your topics, yeah. your, your your things that you're working on, how are you doing that? Are you sitting in a well-lit room with a pen and pad? Are you in front of a computer? Is it a dark room? Do you leave? Do you go? So how do you personally find time and space to rethink? Um, I think like one of the things that I am lucky that I am writing about this stuff on a daily basis. I'm constantly having conversations with people that know a lot more than I do about these things. And my job is to help like translate that to a broader audience. So over the years, being able to like, I think, steadily sit down and talk to people has helped me like reframe what things are about to. 
But yeah, when you're looking at this entire giant document, I literally took out my the original edition of the book and I went through it all and made tons of sticky pasted notes on there too and just went through and like, here's what I better redo. Here's what I don't need to redo. This needs to be cut out. And then um, you said about like a plan of attack. So who are these new people I want to go um, write about? What do I want to go? How do I want to approach it? How can I find them? And then, um, you know, set up interviews, do the interviews go on from there too. I mean, this is like a complete oversimplification of the process, but you need to look at what you did originally. And I think be willing to look at your earlier work and then, which I don't often confront my earlier work because what I do oftentimes, I, you put it out there in the world and it's gone. Yeah. Um, maybe it becomes like, you know, Catline or whatever. Maybe it becomes like someone's shelves. But I don't often think about it afterward too. And I think when you think about something you previously did, you can oftentimes like beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. Like, how was I such an idiot? I can't believe I said this. I can't believe I got this wrong. And I did feel a lot of that probably sense of like um, – it wasn't shame if it was something kind of like, how could I be an idiot? But I mean, it was just, I think it was just, I think underscoring that we're all in these constant states of evolution and learning. And there's no perfect moment where we just know it all. And so I was like, okay, now that my, with my greater knowledge base, 10 years on, how can I rethink this and how can I rephrase stuff? And it wasn't just kind of bringing in new content, but I think softening a lot of maybe there was really this David versus Goliath mentality that pervaded so much of craft beer back in like 2013, 2012. Like, I mean, up until probably five years ago, I mean, when people were still up in arms about ABI buying breweries and that went through, it's like, Oh, don't drink this macro lava or don't do this. And it was just like, okay. But now that I've talked to a ton of people that work at these breweries, like what they do, they do so incredibly well. It may not be the flavor profile that you want, but you have to admire them for the ability to, get a consistent marketable product out to a broad, broad audience and, you know, sales practices, things like that. That's a whole nother conversation, but from a quality perspective. So it made me re I mean, I'm not going to say rethinks. I keep on saying that. I, know, I, I think that's the theme though. That's, that's Yeah. It made me revise, revise my approach to how I talked about these breweries. You soften it because a lot of these breweries, I mean, they're making great products. It's just their sales tactics may be something that be leaving lots to be desired or their pricing that like undersold people to enforcing them to make compromises or price people on the market. So I think that was really something that I wanted to bring into the book as well, too, that I mean, it's not just like I think remove this kind of like us versus them mentality, which I think was so important to really, I think, staking what craft beer could be. But nowadays, it's a kind of a detriment, I would say, to have it be so divisive because beer is not fighting each other anymore. Beer is fighting, you know, hand cocktails, beer is fighting spirits, beer is fighting wine, beer is fighting other things altogether. So to have it be such a divisive conversation, like, really is a detriment, I think, to the beer industry at large. I think it's just, yeah, in the day, if you're drinking... It is. I mean, these signifiers of like, you know, I I believe in the little guy, but things have gotten so regional nowadays, too, that I really think this is the future that it's going to be less. We're seeing fewer and fewer national craft brands, people like drawing back on distribution. And what's happening now is you're going to see tons of like proud local regional people and people are going to, you know, you're going to stock up on these big brands at the grocery store for the price points that make you happy. Um, and then you're going to go to your local breweries and tap rooms and stock up on there too. And like drink these beers proudly in your local markets. And so, whereas, you know, back then it was really, I think we thought about these brands rising to the status of national brands and a lot of them did and a lot of them backed off, you know, green flash wanted to be in all 50 States and look at them now, you know, you're watching that it's being in all 50 States felt like a marker of like, gosh, I made it. Look at me. But you didn't realize that having being in all 50 states as smaller breweries opened up, like somebody's always going to out hop you. Someone's always going to out local you. Someone's always going to out something on you. So unless you've got a true value proposition, I think, as a company, you're not going to a value proposition, a great product and a great ethos behind you. You're going to have a hard time um, resonating beyond your backyard nowadays. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Blue Ocean Strategy. So what that is about is, you know, what we're talking about here is we have all these brands, all these breweries competing. And when they compete against each other, there becomes a lot of blood in the water, a lot of competition. Now you're fighting over pricing and you're doing that. So now now that's a red ocean, right? It's bloody. Mm. What you need to do is how do you, it's almost like purple cow, right? How do you 
create a new market segment. And that's where I thought that, you know, that almost like hard seltzer came in and was like, yeah. hey, we got this blue ocean. It's a whole new avenue where we don't have the competition. We don't have to fight over price because we are something new and we're going to steal some of those customers. Yeah. And, you know, so it's interesting. But yeah, when, you know, when you go 50 states, sometimes you lose track of your backyard. Yeah, you know, like there's blood, yeah, and you know, there's blood in the water with hard seltzer nowadays too. And I mean, it's not even a. I was just down in uh, Texas. I was talking to Shiner people, and they had a, a hard seltzer play, and they basically are just like, you know, I mean, this is just this is just the evolution right now, right? They had a hard seltzer play. Hard seltzer didn't work for them. They found a pretty strong oil audience for their local taproom customers, so they're going to probably do small batch, small batch hard seltzer for you know for the taproom only. But what they are now moving into is um, distilled spirits. I mean, that's just that's just that too. I think people saw this sort of like the idea of like this magical five percent hundred calorie thing made from sugar, but with no sugar. What right. was, it, what was it made from? Who knows? It was kind of like the, <laughs> it's like the chicken McNuggets of beer. It's like they're pleasurable. But you don't want to. You don't ask like where it comes from. You don't peek behind the curtain, and you're just so people are gravitating more toward I think things that real fruits, like, you know, things they can understand. I think a lot of people thought that hard seltzers had booze in them anyway. So anyway, whole other thing for another time. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right. So you mentioned Austin, a lot of traveling. Um, you're back home now. Do you feel like a weight's been lifted? Are you exhausted? And kind of talk to me a little bit about the cities you've traveled to, how they've changed since the last time you went, as well as the beer scenes there. Have those changed as well yeah you know i it's very i was just came back from austin i mean uh we were talking i, I came back out the uh, landed at uh like 2 a.m last night so uh fresh memories i'll put it like that fresh memories tired eyes <laughs> so um was that fresh memories yeah. what fresh memories and tired eyes i like it okay um but yeah i think what was really you know just i think what the the climate and the landscape really dictate i think which interests me is like how climate and landscape dictate what we drink and like how we drink, you know, Austin tends to have like, you know, really hot, really warm weather, things like that. A lot of space on the outskirts and things yeah. like that. So the beer garden culture there was just so huge and so vast. And so, um, was that meanwhile brewing, they had everything from like a, a stage to a soccer field to a uh, playground for kids to roam around at, um, went to Jester King, 165 acres, nice. goat, you know, goat farm, um, awesome beer garden, huge beer hall with a big outdoor space as well, too. Um, was that live oak before the flight yesterday, too? Like 19, 20 acres, mini, uh, disc golf course, things like that, too. So it's like hmm. the beer there is sort of an accessory to these like larger outdoor experiences, I yeah. think. And and to that point, like, what do you drink when you're with people that when you want to hang outside for a long period of time in hot weather and it's like pilsners and lagers? So you see these low ABV beers like Jester King has their little petite prints, like 2.9% farmhouse nice. uh, beer, which was like, you know, you can crush a couple of those. It's like five bucks a pint, right? Amazing. Like that doesn't cost a lot of money to make like a low ABV beer without a lot of hops in there. Um, you know, drinking half liters of like a pilsner over at Live Oak for something like that. I mean, it's just like. It was interesting how these sort of like styles have become so linked to the town because of people are drinking outside in hot weather. So it makes a ton of sense that this is what people are going to yeah. um, gravitate toward on there. Yeah. Where else have I been in the last couple of weeks? Um, I was in Santa Barbara, maybe at the end of uh, at the beginning of March, doing a story for Imbibe magazine, looking at this intersection of beer gardens, sorry, botanic gardens and beer okay. and all that, too. But, uh, you know, Santa Barbara has also got has a sort of like lush tropical climate as well. And so it's like so outdoor. But whereas Austin may be a little bit drier, a little bit hotter, um, Santa Barbara was definitely a bit more lusher, a little more coastal. I think what there was like what struck me is like talking to people there. It's like I'm always curious, like how people how people survive the pandemic as a brewery when people stop buying your beer. So I think it was a third window brewing. I talked to them out there for a while. Um, smash burgers, right? Yeah. They became a, I think one of the owners, his, uh, a sibling had cows at a farm and then, uh, no, there were no restaurants buying beef or buying like that type of beef on there too. So it started making smash burgers and smash burgers became like salvation. So people mm. came out of their house to get something they couldn't get elsewhere. 
they came there for smash burgers and bought beer now and now they're known for smash burgers <laughs> and it's just, i think it's just this adaptation we're, i think you're going to see more and more of this too last year i did a story from vibe as well looking at how breweries turn to become um, pizzerias as well because what are the two things that you could take out you can take out during the pandemic we took out pizza right Pizza became this thing where you could take it, take it home, be happy with it, um, take out four packs of beer too. So breweries are like, oh man, I'm going to start making pizza too. So you're starting to see all these like really interesting regional pizza varieties pop up in the yes. same that we see beer, like South Boston bar pies, something like that, or Detroit style pizzas, um, or people utilizing their um, yeast strains inside of the, uh, to make the pizza. So, you just saw people, there was a relationship that previously existed, but wasn't quite defined or underlined for the customer, or given a chance to experience it. And so I think to me, traveling around, I'm seeing much more food becoming a reason to get people out. When when four packs don't get people to line up at the doors anymore, mm-hmm. and cultish beer is sold at your grocery store. Like, man, I was in Burlington last, uh, last September, and what was it? Hetty Toppers at the Price Chopper. Yeah, and so at the gas station too. Yeah, at the gas station, and I mean, that's great. I mean, that's that's a, that's a great change. You have to. I don't. I don't really believe that you need to wait in line for world class beer, much like you don't need to wait in line for great brunch. But people like waiting. <laughs> and waiting is kind of like in our culture to do. But but yeah, I think there's. Um, you have to bring people in that may not be looking for beer all the time, but people need to eat. Um, people don't need to drink, but they do need to eat. So I think when you reframe it as that sense as a business, what can you bring people in that may not be drinking at a certain point, be it today, be it, be it for their life, be it whatever. So what can you do? So food, comfort food done really well within these metrics, be it Smashburger, be it pizza, be it whatever is a really becoming huge draws for people to come in there as well. I think, um, I think that's going to be the future. Your most breweries did not open up to become restaurants, but Right. Now well, you, you want people to stay there longer, buy more beer. Yeah. I was at Meanwhile Brewing. Um, you know, they have like five permanent food truck pop-ups and like um, trailers outside there. Um, distant relatives, a, uh, a great barbecue pop-ups there that draws people to come there for food. And then and maybe they buy a couple beers or a couple NA seltzers along the yeah. way too and enjoy themselves. And so, yeah. And having all these other attractions, how can you... How can you bring people in? I think your space, what your what can your space offer people? People need people need community. People always need community. They always need food. They don't always need beer. Um, but they will enjoy beer. But beer is not always a sub. I think when you get deep in the beer, when when you're into beer in the beginning, you think like everybody's drinking beer all the time and these things too. And it's like, but it's not, it's not like a seven-day-a-week thing for a lot of people it's like maybe a weekend only thing right maybe once or twice a month thing for people so when you rethink like but how can you create opportunities people to enjoy your space enjoy community having a people will get mocked for having like playgrounds and stuff but you know what like what the parents what do young parents need i mean young yeah. parents need places to take their kids to roam around and connect with other young parents and when they're feeling harried and you know you need connection yeah. And so and if they can, you know, if they're out, there's food there, keep everybody happy, keep the kids happy. And then, Hey, you know what? While I'm here, if there's beer, I'll, ha- I'll have one. Yeah. They have two. And yeah, maybe you have one beer. Maybe if there's a place for the kids to play, they'll have two beers. So I think all of these things are like, these are, these are the, these are these evolutions I'm seeing right now too, that there's too much good beer to convince anybody to drive an hour to go get that beer anymore. This is not saying that that behavior doesn't exist still. And I mean, it will always. I mean, every every genre has its like like hardcore collectors on there. But maybe at this point, we've exhausted the amount of hardcore consumers that want to undertake these pilgrimages and do it. Yeah. And so with these, how do you find the more casual consumers to make this happen? I think like turning your space into welcoming environments. And that's like more of what I'm seeing everywhere I look. It's just this like... Um, Food, food, and being considerate about that, and also having to like end the struggles of how do you become a hospitality company as well. I think these are going to be the growing. That's hospitality is really the next front. It's not what's the next IPA. It's not what's the next whatever. It's like what, how what's the next frontier in hospitality experience. 
Yeah. Experience. You go to a brewery. I've, I've said this for years. You go to a brewery. If you have a vacation from reality, you exit through the gift shop with totems of your experience, be it a, be it a four pack, be it a hat, be it branded glassware, be it a onesie for your friend having a kid. Yeah. And you know, the better the hospitality, the better chances are that maybe you'll make an extra sale out the door too. And I mean, it's, it's a business. It's the beer business. As you know, it's the brewing business. And I think, we forgot that it, it passion really drove a lot of, I think the beginning interest and especially this like big push of like, gosh, I want to open up a brewery. I'm going to open up a brewery. I'm doing it. But passion can passion exhausts after a while too. You can only burn so hot for so long. You need to make something that's much more viable, sustainable. And I think that's where having a, a tinier, smaller footprint with like, great customer service and um yeah that that's it and that's going to be a hard hurdle because being a great brewer does not make you a great like um a great restaurant owner or great this too because the hospitality businesses exist in different spheres altogether the alcohol industry existed to provide hospitality with opportunities to serve those products in thoughtful ways yep. and now you think of like how do you serve it in your own thoughtful way yeah. And a lot of times, you know, those folks who started a brewery, right, they were that was kind of like their escape from their day job, right? They're brewing yeah. beer on the weekends in their garage and hey, I got something here. And they do that to escape their job. And then now what they do is end up creating a job. And eventually they don't even brew the beer. Now they're running a business and they're like, crap, now I have actually a lot more work than I even set out for. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 80-hour weeks, 90-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks on there, too. And I think people got stretched really thin the last couple of years of having to keep their business afloat at all costs. I think the burn, I mean, there was, I think, reference something, or I think I pitched on something, the burnout rate was like 100% for people pulled. And it's like, yeah, but I think if we talk about it, I think the burnout rate for people in so many things is like 100% right now. People, people I think got exhausted and then we hit the reset you know hit the resume button without this like you know collective pause to kind of gather ourselves for these next steps and so as i think and that's happening a lot it's not just beer but happening all people too like how do you get over this burnout and how do you go forward i mean a lot of it is managing people right you're in the people business yeah. I don't, you know i got staff members who are complaining staff members who don't show up i need a food truck food truck doesn't show up like he's got a lot of headaches all you want to do is make beer yeah. And, you know, it's like if the food truck doesn't show up, who do they complain to? They complain to the brewery. And so it's a headache on your because the food truck doesn't show up because they're short staffed because there's staffing shortages across the country right now. They don't show up. People complain because there's no food there. And then what do they do? So it's like the fault of the brewery and they get nagged on Yelps and you got to like worry about your negative Yelp reputation, you know, and things like that, too. And so it's like all these headaches and you're just like, man, I just want to make a great IPA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's it you know my, my friends told me i made great beer <laughs> <laughs> now what and look what happened <laughs> that's right to your point like you said you don't have to venture very far i mean being where you are right you're in brooklyn yeah like so you, i mean interborough kcbc uh finback i mean you don't have to go very far to have some world-class beer i walk down the road like i walk like a mile or take like a I take like a 10 minute bike ride to the left, go west down the hill and go on. And so I've got wild east. I've got all my lager, like my lager pills and needs met. Oh, I'd like to get some like, like New York state malt driven British inspired beers. Oh, there's strong rope right there. Oh, I'd like some more great pilsners, the great courtyard. Oh, three's brewings right there. Yeah. Oh, Finback. I'd like some hazy IPAs. Perfect. Oh, next inside Finback's half tone where it gets some like Husnum gin. And that's like, five places, four places within kind of like a tiny radius on there too, which you would have died or you would have like, I'll give at least one of these fingers that have four of those options in my town like 10, 12 years ago. And now yep. they're just there. I mean. And all, all the more reason to have a great experience, right? So that because somebody doesn't have to come back to your place if there's really good beer and a really good experience just down the street. Yeah. And I think, um, who was I talking to? Um, yeah, I think my friends at KCBC, you know, they were talking about, like, we're talking about flights because they're in Bushwick. Talking about flights, you know, they've, they've gone down a number of flights now they've done. I think it's because they have loyal customers that know what they want nowadays, too. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. They, they trust their flavor expectation that 
be a sour beer you had here with different fruits. It's going to be just as good as the original sour beer. And like, oh, I trust your IPAs too. They've cultivated a loyal following and a fan base that trusts them implicitly through these different through these different styles nowadays too. So they're more willing to take a chance mm-hmm. on the different beers they may do within because they've proven their competency within this tiny little within within this within these windows. You know, they're like they make great great hazy IPAs. Awesome. Fruit sour is awesome. Like, you know, lagers are awesome too. And so they've done that. So if something's a little bit different, like, oh, it's a Czech Pilsner or a German Pilsner, it's like, they're not like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Like, can I try to taste that? It's like, no, just, just give me that. I'll make I me know it's going to be good. You guys make high class beer and let me drink it. Yeah. I think we're moving beyond a little bit, like some of that flight culture aspect too, which I think goes back toward these quaffable beers that we quite, I hate the word quaffable, but but yeah. drink these beers that we and even drinkables water is drinkable you know everything but caustic resin you know <laughs> you know but you know going back toward beers that are meant to be consumed meant to be consumed and not and i, I think moving into a place where beer is being for consumption and not just contemplation to be a companion to good times and not the driver of conversation I don't have a wall. I don't. Ha- It'd be great if I had a you little. Know, great. This is just great sound bites. I just want to. <laughs> I know. It'd be great if I had like a little thing back there. I could just write it down and like look at the wall on there, but that's not true. But yeah, I think, you know, if you think back to like another thing is we, craft beer was really the driver of conversation. Like this pastry sat tastes like this and this tastes like that. And wild, can you taste this? I think we're, we're evolving to a point now for a lot of people where it's like, yeah, this beer's great. Oh man, that's fun. Uh, let's go back to just talking. You know, as with friends say, we tried at Live Oak, like their corn-driven Kolsch, their Polish Pilsner, their German Pilsner, their Czech Pilsner, and like you know, everything was just like a little bit different. And like we had like a maybe about five, ten seconds conversation about, it, and it was like let's go back, and we forgot about it. So it was like acknowledge it was there acknowledge it was different but it wasn't something we needed to like fine-tune on there if you yeah. do want to dive down into the nitty-gritty thumbs up um yeah. that's there too but the average person i've discovered over many years of doing this doesn't care <laughs> yeah i think that what it beer just connects you it it, yeah. brings, it brings a sense of community and hopefully it's good but the goal is to have that conversation with the person next to you, right? And have that gamut lakite, right? Yeah. And all those beautiful things. And I think we forgot that for a bit. I think we yeah. forgot that for a bit that, that was supposed to be. And I think coming out of like a couple of years, we've been six feet apart, that um the tap rooms are going to become and commute tap rooms can become more and more important as drivers of drivers connectivity and community to show you who else lives around you, who are these faces that may not look like mine. We're all together over a beer, and here we are. I mean, it was yesterday at Live Oak. It was like uh, some like tree. It was like a it was like a, a meetup for some like tree organization, which makes yeah. sense. At Live Oak, like Earth Day or something, right? Yeah, it was like an Earth Day ish like some organization. Um, but it brought such like you know gardeners out, and it brought people that have like different uh, different approaches to that. But it brought them all together to like commune over. This like shared love of something while sharing another shared love, which is beer. Absolutely. Makes sense. What all have you learned from, you know, again, just this change in 10 years? Obviously, we're talking about a little bit about the you know, the industry, the the locations, but what about you know the book itself or or the book industry or or just like yourself in this last 10 years from from kind of revising this book? We yeah. kind of I'm almost taking this from that. You know, no man ever stands in the same river because it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Yeah, I think I look back at I look at beer as something that, you know, back when I was in my teens, I spent my days flipping through record stores and trying to find the latest CD and perusing through the UCD bins. Oh, yeah. That was something that I felt would never exhaust, but it exhaust. I didn't stop loving music, but I stopped seeking it out with the same fervor. And I went back to listening to the bands I loved over and over and over again. Well, also uh, we have Spotify. We don't have to go to the yeah building. We have that. You have your algorithm guiding you. Yes, <laughs> there's not the algorithm for beer that's perfect quite yet. But um, I think for me too, I found myself that it was this endless quest to find new flavors um, and doing that and just buying new things all the time. And 
I, I'm still curious out there too, but I am not as willing, I think, to just buy things willy-nilly and fill my fridge and do this to that. Um, I am not like going out of my way to seek out as many things on there too, that beer is one of my broad sets of interests nowadays. And like I've kind of slotted it into something that it's like, I'm happy to go try new things and experience the events and do stuff too, but I'm not going out of my way. And being a dad as well, wasn't a dad 10 years ago. So you've got like, I can't dedicate my time to 2am like I did when 6am hits the same time every day. Your priorities are changed. My priority, I think... Our priorities always shift and evolve too. Um, but I still love trying new beers, but I'm going back. I think the classic hits a lot more like why does, um, why do these Belgian triples stand the test of time? Like why, like Saison DuPont, like why is that so awesome and so amazing? Oh, why are these South terrific? So I'm going back, I think, and revisiting like favorites from the past and maybe revisiting them in a way where um Finding finding nuance where before I was only looking for fireworks because I think beginning when you first start out you'll respond to intensities but you look for complexities now and I think in a way I didn't previously and I think so those are me personally like the book industry has really changed so much I think it's just so drastic I think the book the book market got really cluttered for beer and all alcoholic beverages too there's any way, shape, and form. I don't see at the current moment a need for myself to personally, I've done six beer books in like 12 years. I don't see another subject that currently that I feel that I feel is worthy for me to tackle or something. I think someone may have a great idea. They can do it too, but I think I'm happy to have like, you know, a book that where I found this book had a ton of, a ton of like utility brought people into the beer world. Um, help them show like what was possible for beer in a way that was approachable, a way that's easy to understand. And I think the other way that I'm seeing with the uh, with the beer world stuff too is like it became a really valuable tool for behind the bar. Um, if you're a person trying to talk to someone about a Maybach, if you're trying to talk about the difference between a Czech and a German Pilsner, um, this book became like a really valuable tool for people. So I see this from a hospitality perspective. So I had that in my mind as well. That this is a book that's going to be something that people to competently and confidently talk about what these beer styles are because like, Oh, what's the difference between this and that? What is this? And like, you know, what makes a beer hazy? You know, it's like, what's the difference between a stout and a porter? You have two on, why is this called <laughs> there too? And so the Baltic, a great bar, a great brewery taproom may have a training program in place, but not everybody has the bandwidth to set up training programs. And so yeah. my I think has become like in a lot of ways, shapes and forms a way for people to have. It's a textbook for colleges for people that want to learn about beer too, because it's set up in a very digestible manner in the same way that a textbook may be set up for people too to flip through. It's like, Oh, Hey class, we're learning about loggers and pilsners today. It's like, Hey class, let's learn about pale ale today. And I find it's also a framework that works really well for boosting knowledge bases without having to, um, it boosts the knowledge base in a way that's like useful for maybe an instructor or a casual person learning on their own. Well, I think you did a really good job of that. You know, you started off with the cold fermentation, the pilsners, the lagers, you move into the hazies next. Cause it's kind of like, that's just, yeah. that's what's next, you know? Um, and I think those first two chapters there are basically like, that's what people are kind of for the most part drinking right now. Um, yeah, you, bring, you bring people in and then like you, you fall in if they want to learn more about Belgian style beers, they can, they don't give a shit. Great. You don't yeah. got to read that chapter. But then at least they see what's 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 out there now. And then you move to the pails and then you move the stouts and barley wines. Yeah, I think I think with the um with the Belgian, I mean, one thing on that the Belgian style beer has gone. You talk about 10 years of change too. Belgian beers back then were considered the best beers in the world, like West Vletterin, um, 12, and like, you know, all these beers we sought out and like, you know, drank, and all of a sudden you summited this like Mount Everest of beer consumption. Belgian beers have really, I think, like fallen in consumer estimation in a lot of ways, too. And it's been a big challenge. Um, And even the number of like Trappist style breweries, I think, that existed um, has has really diminished. Even when I was writing the book, like Spencer's Abbey stopped producing beer because they said, I think they said it can be a viable business plan. Um, And then like I think for myself as a thinker or when I think about it. Um, it's just that Belgian style beer for a lot of people was, uh, 
or the Trappist Beers was this classic like exclusive club that was like being able to sell beer with its label to a select number of people in the same way that champagne was. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. Trappist doesn't really mean it's better or worse. It just means that it's like made by this set number of people within this. So I think it's, I think better, better underlining that construct for people that it's something that is definitely a, a label. It means that there's like history tradition behind it, but it doesn't mean that's what it means. Right. You, know, right, you, right. Can, make, you can make great sparkling wine in America in the same way you can make great champagne. And it's just like, you can do it if you want to do it. You just can't call it the same thing on there. Right. Too. Yeah. So, I just had on Jerry Frank, who's a filmmaker. Um, he's making that movie bottle conditioned. And that was wild yeah. because kind of to your point going, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, these Lambic makers didn't think they had a business. Nobody, they couldn't give it away, right? People weren't buying it. And now, you know, the, the mind and the taste buds have shifted and people are paying a premium for it and they can't keep it on the shelves, you know? To an extent, I would, I would, I would add on to that too, that I think like Cantillon and people like that definitely have a place in people's minds to be able to sell that to people, that there's definitely a name brand association with it too. But Wild and beer pro wild beer programs are you know dying a slow death in the American marketplace at the hands of the kettle sour. I would say right. because um, those beers take a lot of time and patience to create properly. Um, yeah, you, people got to make money, right? People need to do it too. And like kettle sours came out, and they're like, "You'd like a little bit of acidity? Here you go. You want yeah. some familiar fruit? Here you go. Here's a price point that's pretty awesome." Mm. Here you go. Where I think wild beers, you know, you can be like a Degard, focus exclusively on like spontaneous fermentation. So either it has to be something that you lean in completely as your competency, or it becomes sort of a selling point or a great taproom experience of these beers. Because on shelves, these beers are hard sells. Um, but yeah, they're they sit for a while. But I talked to New Belgium about this too. I mean, their program does really well within the taproom. Because people had to walk through the fooders, look at the fooders, be like, what's those towering oak yeah. things? Yeah. Try the beer. And so it's like sense, sense memory, or like sense, they get the sensory perspective, the um, education behind why these beers, what they are. Then the price point seems like palatable, but in a way where it's sitting on a store shelf, it doesn't. So I think you're seeing a lot of these like beers falling out. I mean, Disappearing from shelves, like there. I think on the shelf, you, if you don't know what it is and you don't understand it, you're afraid to buy it, especially at the price point. I mean, they're growing dusty in the same way that maybe bourbon of 20 years ago grew dusty. That people didn't understand it, people didn't know this too, and it's just like, you know, there's a lot of like. Uh, but unfortunately, there's like these beers aren't static at a stick at a focused moment in time, and. Yeah, that was something else, I think, for the book, too. Like, the cellaring chapter changed this evolution that I think we thought. We all thought you could just, like, (laughs) put beer in the basement, wait 10 years, and it'll be, A, better, and be worth a lot of money. (laughs) And for anybody that collected baseball cards, like I did back in the day, you realize, like, uh, if you have the idea, everybody else has the idea, and the ultimate thing is, like, it needs to have a value. You need to have a buyer at the end. Someone that didn't have your idea, but desires that in a way that you no longer desire it. So, <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. It's, I mean, did ba- baseball cards disappeared for 20 years and now they're back because I think Gary Vee's pushing them. But, you know. Uh, they're coming back. To, I just did a really fun story for Vine Pair about, like, uh, trading cards and beer. Like, Treehouse is set of trading cards nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. Pops partnered with um, Keith Shore from McKellar to do the Taste Bud series of cards. Um yep. I did Paps partnered with a wrestling firm to recreate this. I like, saw that you had yeah. posted that. Yeah, that was that. So that's like, that's funny. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, those are the stories I want to tell in beer nowadays when I write. It's like what, what, A, explain what's happening, make sense of why these market shifts are happening for people and B, uncover these like great fun stories that go beyond just like, they go beyond beer fandom. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And obviously you come back through in the, in the back of the book, you the, the stouts, the barley wines, sours internationally. You just talked about the cellaring and the pairing with food. So what a yeah. well-rounded book. You did a terrific job with it. Thank tell you. me, tell me about, and let's see if you can remember, but your top five beers consumed while making this book. 
Okay, I have to look back at my own book on that too. <laughs> I gotcha. Oh god, um, I know. I know. I drank a shit ton of Bitburger. Um, Bitburger goes back as being like one of these like classic, um, classic uh, beers. Like for a value point, it's always like six or seven bucks for a four pack of yeah. like amazing German Pilsner there too. Um, I started a garden in the backyard during the pandemic. Well, because like you know, it's a way to kind of like connect. Yeah. And, to connect with something that felt greater than yourself. And like, I drank a fair amount of a bush light. I saw that. I laughed at that. Like, why? No, it's like, a, <laughs> you know, Bodega down the road from me has like, had like buck 50 pounders of 25 ounce cans. And like ice cold in a koozie is a pretty good, a pretty good get on there too. And you know what you're getting. It's consistent every time. Yeah. And then uh, I drink. I think it was also going back to like when I was like seventeen, drinking Bushlight too. So I definitely had that like memory association with like good times of drinking these beers when I was a kid. Nostalgia. Yeah, nostalgia. And I think like Bell's Kalamazoo was on there as well. Bell's Kalamazoo was on there. All right, that's their stout, uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Oh, yeah, the pale. And yeah. You mentioned this beer numerous times, but the Saison Dupont. Yeah, and it is. I think it is because. Uh, they had it in cans. I think like I love I, the can. The can's beautiful. Yeah, the can's beautiful. And then having it in cans, it's like I think the best way, I don't know if I described it as such in the book, but described it that way too, is like it's almost like a three di- three-dimensional drinking experience. Cause oftentimes you've got this like um this beautiful sort of like dusty, earthy character for the spear too, from something that's definitely seen some time on it. But fresh, it just like popped in a way I'd never had it before, too. And I think that just like underscores this idea that you know it's like what you consume as a beer is not always like what is is best intent i mean it's like a really funny story when i was doing homebrew world in my earlier books i interviewed a british brewer who basically was trying to like make the best version of a green flash beer in the uk but he was getting kind of like four or five month old like ipa so he made like the best version of like Really, <laughs> a really old IPA and he did and he did a great job making like a fresh version of an old IPA then when he had it fresh he's like he's like oh shit it was like a different beer <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny and like how much of what we do is like based upon you know based upon like our, our taste experiences are based upon like not the best expression of what they could be be it a restaurant had an off day in the kitchen you know something like that you know there's a lot of like or the crop of lettuce you grow in the backyard like had some issues this year didn't taste as good as it could uh, and it colors your opinion for for life oftentimes Hmm. it shouldn't try it again try it again give everything two two chances you wish but that's not how it works nowadays yeah that's not how it works nowadays no yeah we talked a little bit about the you know again the the Sections of the book, what I really like that you did, you know, you highlighted, you have a brewery highlight in almost every chapter here. Uh, Jack's Abbey, Boulevard, Fort Firestone Walker, you mentioned Alvarado Street, Allagash. I've heard nothing but great things about the folks at Allagash and how willing they are to help the community and other brewers. Yeah, they're terrific. Um, to that point, within that chapter, too, I, I really talked about how the, you know, brought in like how the pandemic had to shift their philosophy whole cloth um, to be a can focused brewery on there, too. And now they're really leaning heavily into their employee pilot program to like really drive this next generation of beers too. And I think, I think like what, you know, and how they've kind of moved away from certain Belgian beers, like the double is something you don't see from them anymore. The triple is still doing well too. But if you pay attention to naming conventions, they're like moving away from, I think like talking about style focus and more about like emotions and places like North sky stout for the like Belgian inspired stout on there too. Um, their um, yeah. hoppy, their table beer, or the hoppy table, or the table beer became hoppy table beer became uh, eventually became I think a river trip, mm. Mm. like not really changing the recipe but changing the concept. So if you think about them, it's like how can you get people to consume beers they know are awesome but need some sort of linguistic massaging, so stuff like that. So yeah. it's bringing in these Belgian styles, but in ways yeah. to ways that help you understand the occasion. So I think people are drinking more and more and more. They need their beers to tell them the occasion and the flavor. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Put, yeah. Put that, uh, put that beer into the situation that you want to be in. Um, yeah. Physically or, or just mentally. Interesting. Yeah. So even the people that I've written about previously, I had to go through and like revise their chapters as well. That's cool. 
Well, I do love watching your journeys of walking around Brooklyn and the street art and the words of wisdom and also the not so words of wisdom <laughs> that are <laughs> that are spread amongst the streets of Brooklyn. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> I just try to just try to show people a piece of my world. I, I mean, it. it's like what I see, I and mean, if you pay attention, the the weirdness surrounds you on a daily basis. Yeah, I think it's important to get out and walk around too. It's yeah. cool. Um, I do. You mentioned the homebrew tour. I got to go on one of these homebrew tours with you, and then. I would love to play chess in Central Park. I feel like that's a kind of a bucket list kind of thing. Yeah, you'll get hustled. Yeah. You'll get hustled. yeah what if I play you? Um, you'll beat me. Uh, so <laughs> you'll, I will get. Uh, I will bet very little money, zero, and lose, but that's okay. But that's okay. okay. Yeah, you want to get hustled, go down to like, uh, yeah, go down to West Village, the table's down there. You get hustled. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, that's I just want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, there is joy in losing. Like in Austin yesterday, we played chicken shit bingo, where basically there's like 99 spots on like a big board and chicken walks around wherever the chicken shits and everybody buys numbers <laughs> on there. For real? That's a real thing. Real. So like we bet on number, we just, you bet, you pay four bucks. If you win, you get 155 bucks. We bet on it and we lost every time. But, you know, there's joy and chance. And it's an experience. You're one chicken walker. It gets pretty. Is it one chicken? Yeah, one chicken. You think about how, how often are they going to the bathroom? A chicken basically takes about three hours to digest food, as I learned by asking yesterday. Um, the record is about twenty minutes for taking time to poop, but it's not like you set the chicken loose and all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, I'm right. I'm, a I'm a pooping here. It's like a but guinea no. pig. I have guinea pigs. That's what they do. Yeah, but no, eventually it'll poop, but it may take a long period of time for it to poop. Okay. Yeah. So the bingo game takes a long time, or you just pick one number. You pick one number. They give you okay. a number. They give you a number, and then the chicken just walk. You can watch it, but it gets pretty boring watching a chicken poop. It's like <laughs> watching water boil. Kind of. I mean, it's a bit grosser, but um, yeah, eventually that's what happens. Chicken that's hilarious. That's funny. I'm booking my flight to Austin. Yeah, you make it happen. Josh, where can we find your book? Everywhere that finer books are sold, um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, independent bookstores, um, through my website, joshuambernstein.com, we'll have uh, signed copies for sale too, but Boy. it uh, releases June 6th nationwide, but I should be doing events before that with copies over the next like uh, so six weeks or so, and you can go to my website, again, joshuambernstein.com to find out all that your heart desires, and you didn't know that it desired to. <laughs> dude i love it i really enjoyed talking to you um we went on so many different tangents and that's what makes these conversations fun so thank you so much for taking the time and uh you know sitting down with us and telling your story to the world and uh, i'm hoping we can do this again no thank you so much it's been a real pleasure catching up awesome you know man josh congrats again best of luck with the book and uh i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to grab my copy it sounds like a plan all right all right, well. all right. thank you so have much man. all right take care All right, that'll do it for today's show. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. That'll help us get found by other fantastic people like yourself. I don't monetize this, so all I ask is that if you like it, share it with someone else who might like it. Connect with me on Instagram at Beer Mighty Things Podcast. Catch you all next time. Cheers and Beer Mighty Things. <laughs>